Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Carajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. I'm joined today by Mia Ali, a life coach, public speaker, and founder of Change Foundry. Through Change Foundry, in her own words, Mia is helping high achievers be the people they want to be by simplifying and redefining life on their own terms. She coaches individuals one-to-one and works with organizations to improve retention, focus, and productivity by supporting their staff to become masters at managing stress. Now, Mia understands better than anyone that outward success does not always amount to inner peace and happiness. Having experienced burnout during a 15-year career in humanitarian aid, bereavement of her dear brother in 2022, and personal health issues of her own. These are wake-up calls that caused Mia to reassess what was important to her and guided her to where she is now in life. She uses her expertise and empathy to help all kinds of people, including burned-out clinicians, start living their one precious life today. Mia, you have so much experience and wisdom on balancing the fear and uncertainty of life against our dreams and our aspirations. I honestly wish that I knew you when I was a clinician, but I'm so, so glad to get to know you now. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me too, honestly. I know that what you have to say will help a lot of people in healthcare dealing with overwhelming stress and burnout in their own lives. So let's dive right into the questions. So Mia, you openly share that the road to where you are now has not been easy or smooth, which is, I think, really refreshing in a world where people talk so much about success and less so about setbacks. So you've touched a little bit on this in the past, but I wonder if you could share more of your journey and what inspired you to help people as a life coach. Absolutely. One of my biggest values is is vulnerability and being vulnerable because actually I, I was... Um, slightly going off topic already and we've only just started but I've been doing a breathworking training just the last six days and everyone was very vulnerable and shared very openly in the group and you realize that just as adults everybody's been through their challenges everybody's got their stuff and their limiting beliefs and all of this um it's so important to be to be open about it and to be honest and so that we can really like work on those things so um, I've had quite a, a, a varied career, but for, as you say, for 15 years, I've worked in humanitarian aid in countries such as uh, Darfur, South Sudan, Liberia, um, a bunch of others. And um, the work was exciting and purposeful and interesting and inspiring. And it was a real privilege to be an aid worker and to work in those contexts with the wonderful people that were there. Um, but of course, it was also very stressful. Um, it had some particular stresses such as um, insecurity, like physical insecurity in the environment because of the contexts, uh, very basic living conditions a lot of the time. But then there, were, there was a lot of stresses that as I've worked more and more with clinicians, I've realized we have a lot in common. So witnessing traumatic events, even if you're not experiencing the trauma yourself, it is traumatic witnessing those events. 
because of limited resources, you can't respond in the way that you know is needed. So technically it's called moral injury. And I know that that happens a lot with uh, clinicians as well. And um, trying to do a lot with very few resources, ridiculous kind of workloads, your work being influenced by things you'd rather it wasn't influenced by, by political issues, by the funders, the people who are funding it and what, what their kind of um, agenda might might be or might not be. And of course, bureaucracy. I've heard that that can be a problem in the NHS. So all of these things that, that really add to your personal stress. And I got to a point where, although I, I, I really thrived, as I know a lot of uh, clinicians do, I really thrived in a high stress environment. I did get to a point about halfway through my career, I was working in South Sudan at the time. I really clearly remember the night that I was just basically like, oh my goodness, I don't recognize myself. I, I feel like I'm not in control of my behavior. It was a really scary feeling. Everything was just kind of coming in on me. And I was so upset about it because I loved the work. I loved it. And I knew I was making uh, an impact, but I knew it was also just having such a negative impact on my physical and mental health. And I had a real like, am I just going to go home? And just not do this anymore, but but that's not what I want. I really want to continue doing this. And um, just out of interest, at that particular point in my career, I was working in a really toxic working environment. I had some great colleagues, but the uh, the management was extremely toxic, and that is what pushed me over the edge. So it's incredible what an impact your the people you're working with can have on your mental health. You can kind of cope with all sorts of things, and a toxic workplace can be was was definitely for me the last straw. And so I kind of made a decision and kind of no matter what decision at that point, I was like, I want to stay here. I need to find a way to cope with this. So the first thing I did was quit that job, which just had to be done in, in that moment. It wasn't a situation that I could manage from within. I quit that job. I'm really glad to say I was able to stay in South Sudan and move to a, a much more supportive organization. Still incredibly stressful. In fact, I was um, working, ended up working with Save the Children and I had probably some of my most stressful experiences due to external events while I was working there. Um, but because I was more supported, I was able to cope with that. And I kind of made it my business to develop personal strategies to manage that stress so that I could stay doing the, the job that I loved. And after that, people people would come to me and kind of ask me what I was doing and I'd be sharing it. And, and, you know, it really impacts a lot of aid workers. There's a lot of burnout in the aid sector. A lot of people's careers are ended or they end up having to take years out because if you really fall over the edge of burnout, it can be very, very serious. Um, and eventually I, I came back to the UK for various personal reasons. And um, my husband and I set up an, an aid consultancy so that we were still working in the sector, which was completely squished and ground to a halt when COVID came because we couldn't travel. So we were in the UK, unable to do the work that, that we love doing. And I thought, how, how can I continue to help in this situation? Because there's still so much, much need. And um, I had had coaching myself. And coaching, I just found to be 
almost a miraculous process. I know that you've had some as, as well. It's really kind of mind opening. You know, sure, with coaching, you can solve problems, you can achieve goals, you can improve your performance. All of those things happen during coaching. But more than that, it's kind of a journey of discovery and awareness and and choice and and discovering you have a choice and what those choices might be. And I was so inspired by coaching myself that I decided to train as a coach. I'm a certified professional coach with the International Coaching Federation. And um, and I started working with with aid workers and um, somehow just kind of by osmosis that kind of moved into into doctors um, of all different levels. I uh, coach one-to-one, I coach some very senior consultants. I do wellbeing programs with lots of junior doctors. Um, I do coaching, I do a lot of talks and workshops at, at different conferences. And I, I absolutely just basically fell in love with the, the frontline health workers in this country and couldn't believe the immense pressures they were under even before COVID and then like slap COVID on top of that. What a complete nightmare. I still can't believe what, what they're all achieving through, through the pressures that they go under. And so it's a real passion of mine now to support them to do that. And I'm so glad that you do. It's, it's so interesting to hear how it's kind of like that old saying that when a door closes, a window opens and it's it's very much like that COVID kind of backed up what you were doing before, but it's opened up so many other wonderful avenues for you to help people. 100%. I mean, it wasn't very pleasant at the time, but looking back, I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm, for sure. So I've read something and I think you just mentioned as well, actually, you were talking about limiting beliefs. And I read somewhere that you were talking about the stories that we tell ourselves and these are things that we have to overcome to get to where we need to go to. So can you share some of the common limiting beliefs that you've heard from healthcare professionals and how you've helped them to overcome these, these limiting ideas? The first thing is we've all got them, right? We've all got these limiting beliefs. They often are formed uh, during our formative years. They're things that we pick up from our, our families, our caregivers, our teachers, our, our peers, and um, they're often somebody else's voice that kind of becomes ours over time. Um, the first thing I want to say, and I I can't demonstrate this on a podcast, but whenever I do, whenever I speak at a conference, I always, this is the first thing I always do. So I'll do talks on things like um, habit hacking for stress relief, imposter syndrome, building your confidence and self-belief. Um, uh, managing intrusive thoughts, any of these things, whatever subject I'm doing right at the beginning, I will ask some questions and I will say, okay, raise your hands if you ever doubt yourself at work. Raise your hands if you ever feel imposter syndrome. Raise your hands if you ever have thoughts about work intruding into your personal life. And without fail, I don't know what I'd do if it didn't work one day, but without fail, every single person in the room puts their hands up. And this is often uh, junior doctors, but there's often consultants in the room and they all put their hands up and everyone just is like, what? And at the end of the talk, I always say, you know, what are your biggest insights? And someone always says, 
I thought it was just me. So that is my very first thing that I would say. However you're feeling, whatever doubts you're having, whatever issues you're having with work or at home, because we're all human beings and our lives are kind of a whole thing, not just work. You know, there's all these different things coming into our lives. It's not just you. I guarantee it. And it's not just your junior doctor colleagues. It's all the people, you know, I work with very, very senior consultants who are in a different situation and they have different challenges, but they still have doubts and they still have issues balancing their lives. And we all have that in common. So that's the very first thing that I would say. Talking of kind of self-doubt and imposter syndrome, which is that very particular kind of self-doubt where um, you've got to where you are but you don't really think you're good enough. And any minute now, someone's going to find out that you're not good enough. Um, One thing that I always say about that, like, so everybody has it. And one thing I'd say about it is it's actually part of being a high achiever. The fact that you've got it is just showing you that you're where you need to be because you're constantly pushing the boundaries. You know, when you're a trainee, you're constantly like learning new stuff all the time. It's such a steep learning curve. Then you move into being a consultant and all of a sudden you're the, you know, the buck stops with you. Um, So it's, it's something that's always there. It's actually a sign that you're in the right place. And the truth about imposter syndrome and, and, and lack of confidence is it's not something that you ever get rid of. You just get good at it. You get comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's really interesting your work in the aid sector, how, how well it melds with the healthcare world, because there are so many societal expectations around that, not just our own personal expectations as hardworking driven types of people, but there's just so much of what the world thinks and, and what is kind of the archetypal good person to do this type of job, right? And that we have to kind of go beyond just what does our family think? We just think that if everyone, if society does, deems us as good people for doing this job, what does it mean if we say no to, to this shift or to this deployment? Oh, I got goosebumps as you said that. Absolutely. And then there's a whole other side thing in the in the aid sector, which is a lot of us, you know, believe our own press that we're good people. And then there's a thin line between being a good person and saviorism. Yeah. So while we're on the, the talk of kind of expectations, I think this is a good time to talk about burnout because I think it is linked a lot to expectations or us trying to meet our expectations. So I know a lot of people who come to you have had a kind of wake up call, some kind of curveball that's been thrown their way, which makes them stop and recognize what's going on in their life. But from a clinician's perspective, and I guess also from an aid worker's perspective, it's a triumph in and of itself to recognize the burnout because it's a culture of keep going and give no matter what. And there's so much expectation around that. So it can make it really hard to stay in touch with what's important for us as individuals. So how can we recognize a wake-up call for what it is and realize when we're, we're actually burnt out? Oh, that is the tricky thing, isn't it? Because it's, um, it's that boiling frog syndrome thing, isn't it? You know, if you, if you, put, a, if you put a frog in a pan of cold water and heat it up, it'll just sit there until it boils to death. I've actually heard recently that's not true at all. But anyway, let's go with the with the visual. And then if you try and put a frog into boiling water, it'll just jump out. And I think that's where 
that's where clinicians and aid workers alike get into trouble because you're, you're just in it for ages and you don't notice what's happening around you and what's happening inside you and it, until one day it explodes. And, and really what we want to do is be, be working on it long before the explosion happens. So just to do like the technical part first, um, burnout was actually added to the WHO uh, International Classification of Diseases in 2019. Um, and it's defined as the result of chronic workplace stress. Interestingly, technically burnout is only related to workplace stress, although of course, real life doesn't work <laughs> like that and there's lots of other factors in your personal life can can add plenty of stress in so it's the result of chronic workplace stress that hasn't been successfully managed and it's a spectrum right there's not a point at which you say oh this person has burnout it's it's a real kind of spectrum and you just move further and further into burnout as you go the kind of classic symptoms are a lack of energy, energy depletion, or, or real ex like bone deep exhaustion, increased mental distance from your job when you're just really losing empathy and losing your connection with the people that you're serving, with your colleagues, with your day to day, and negativity or, or cynicism. I think that's a really good word to describe it cynicism related to your job. Now, any clinicians that are listening, <laughs> I'm probably thinking, well, I'm pretty tired and I'm pre feeling pretty ne negative about my job right now and, you know, a bit of distance from it. And of course, like, like probably most people are somewhere along, along the spectrum. Um, in reality, the types of things that I see happening, the type that the, what happened to me was I literally felt like my behavior was out of control. It became very clear to me that I was not myself and I it, I was frightened. I was frightened by my own behavior. I've had clients come to me when they found themselves yelling at colleagues really uncharacteristically. They've and again it's that feeling of of being out of control and doing something that you you didn't mean to do but you couldn't stop yourself. Um, I've had people coming to me when they're just completely done with it all. They're at the point where they just want nothing more to do with it. They just want to want to leave so it, it can look like lots of lots of different things I think that uh, well just to mention there are a number of tests uh some you know if you google burnout test you'll find a bunch of things some of them are kind of properly rigorously tested such as the Maslach burnout inventory is not a perfect test but it's it's kind of a classic but you could you could easily you know run through one of those tests and it, and that in itself might give you a bit of a wake up call, but there can be any number of things, you know, any kind of event, like a, a relationship breakup, a bereavement, um, a, an injury, an illness, any of these things can be a doorway to make us just look around and think this is not where I need to be. So whatever, whatever it is, doesn't really matter. You can actually move forward from that in a really positive, positive way. Um, there is also something called brownout. I don't know if it's a technical term, but um, it's kind of a, rather than kind of burnout, sudden kind of lack of, lack of um, energy and exhaustion and all this kind of thing. It's a bit of a, a, a kind of slow burn, drop in engagement levels. Um, you're feeling disengaged, you're, you're unmotivated, 
you're, you perhaps have a lack of interest in your job. So that might describe a lot of, a lot of clinicians. So it's well worth, if that, if that resonates with you right now, it's probably time to do something about it. Definitely. I think, I think the brownout you're describing, and I haven't heard this term, but I think that, I think that's true um, for a lot of people actually, that there isn't some cataclysmic event or something like that. It's, 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 it's a kind of a slow drudgery or uh, a feeling that's kind of coming over them over a long period of time. I am, I think a big part of dealing with, with burnout is obviously taking a step back and um and reassessing taking some time out for ourselves but i think the idea of finding a better work life balance can be difficult for driven people i know for myself i know the idea of doing less of something even when it's taking too much out of me can be really hard to swallow so there's this kind of dichotomy in our heads we feel like we have to choose one or the other it has to be ambition or peace but you believe it's possible to have both can you share how you think people can can achieve you know reaching their potential and managing their stress or managing a kind of period of burnout simultaneously well one thing I I I want to say is that we talk about life balance don't we and I think sometimes the way it's kind of presented is like I don't know, somehow it's miraculously all in balance and kind of nothing's taking up too much time or space and everything's beautifully balanced. Like it doesn't work like that. I think I think that's why it seems so unattainable, doesn't it? It's not like a 50-50 thing work in life or anything like that. Balance looks different at different times of our lives. So for example, if you're if you're a trainee doing exams right now, your life is going to be wildly out of balance, obviously, because you're going to be doing exams and revision and all of this kind of stuff. You're doing night shifts and and what what. But you've the the point is that you've chosen to do that. You might be regretting that, right? <laughs> you've chosen to do it, and you've chosen to do it for a period of time. And you know that that means that other areas of your life are going to be less. You you're going to have less energy and less time and less attention for those. But that's the choice you've made for the time being. The real trick is that when that period is over, when you've passed your exams, that you don't continue behaving in that way, that you make an intentional choice to go, okay, I've got to this stage of my life now. And you have a real think about how do I want my life to look now? Because what I have a lot of is clients coming to me and saying, it will be much better when my exams are over. We've moved house, the kids are older, this busy period at work is over. Like there's always a when if. And when they get to the end of that period, they find out they're just the same because they're behaving in the same way. So one of the biggest things you can do is gift yourself the time of reflection regularly to really look at, you know, what do I want for my life right now? And how is that? How is that going? I I guess actually something that I did want to talk to you more about is just really when people do come to you and um, it's clear to them that they are experiencing burnout, what are the kind of the first things that you do with them? How do you get people to reset, if you like? Okay, great question. This is really boring to talk about, but I would be remiss if I didn't say it because ultimately you have to deal with it. 
Um, the very first thing I do is an energy audit with them. And the very first part of the energy audit is looking at their physical energy. And we are talking about that stuff we all know about, getting enough sleep, eating on the whole nutritious food, keeping hydrated and moving your body on the regular. And I'm not going to, I never, ever lecture people about how to do any of those things because we all know, right? We all know how to do those things. We don't need other people to tell us. The difficulty is how do you fit all those things into your already very hectic life? Um, the first thing I'd say is I know that if you're a junior doctor, the idea of getting enough sleep is like a bad joke. As, as it is, if you have small children or other issues going on in your life that are impacting your sleep. But sleep out of all of those four is really the first one. You know, if, if, you, if all of them are all over the place, I always say start with sleep first. Because getting enough quality sleep really is the basis for everything else happening for all of your stress management techniques. If you're not working on those four areas, all the stress management techniques in the world aren't, aren't going to help you. And this is where you were talking about kind of the nature of high achievers and really pushing themselves and wanting to do things. Something that I find um, really in common with most high achievers is that they're very all or nothing. I'm exactly the same myself. So you're like, right, I listened to Mia and she said I need to sort this out. So by next Monday, I'm going to be a vegan marathon runner and I'm going to be getting nine hours sleep every night and doing all the things. And you set it all up. And because you're a high achiever, you're brilliant the first day. And the second day, you're still doing quite well. And the third day, something happens and you have a terrible day at work and it all kind of falls apart. But you're like, okay, I'll go back to it on the fourth day. But something else happens. And by the fifth day, you're just like, I've failed myself again. And then you've got all the guilt and the kind of self-reproach that you can never, never stick to these things. And this is probably the least popular bit of my advice that I give to any clinicians, but slow and steady really does win the race on this one. It has been proven by so much research time and time again that small changes applied consistently have you know, a huge compound effect. So, you know, if you're doing night shifts and all of that horrible stuff and night shifts, honestly, I know they have to be done, but they're awful. They really are. They're, they're awful because they steal your sleep. They mess up your sleep cycle, which is bad enough, but they also make it difficult for you to set up routines, other healthy routines, not impossible, but difficult because your days don't look the same all the time. An amazing book for um, reading about habits, which is what is the real key here, is Atomic Habits by James Clear. I would really recommend that to the listeners to read. It's brilliant. Um, and just making these small changes. For example, I know this sounds daft, but if you could just scrape 10 more minutes of good sleep a night, that's an hour in a week, which I know doesn't solve all your problems, but your sleep deficit is cumulative. So even that tiny, tiny change is making a difference. If I had to give, I, I, could, I do literally run an entire program on habit hacking for stress relief and to helping people to implement uh, healthy habits. But if I had one kind of piece of advice to give, it would be, this isn't one piece, it's kind of two pieces, but keep it really small and achievable 
and do what's called habit stacking. So whatever the healthy habit is, stack it onto a habit you already have. And we all have tons of habits. We all brush our teeth twice a day. Even if you've got a night shift, there's somewhere in that day that you're brushing your teeth. You know, we're creatures of habit. We might have a coffee at the same time of day or, you know, whatever, whatever little things that we do that are habits. If you stick a new habit on top of a habit you already have, you're much more likely to stick to it. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the breath work, actually, because I'm really curious about how just a connection with our with our physical bodies can help our understanding of ourselves as people as well. It is unbelievable. So I've just been on a six day intensive, the first part of my training, and I have been through a roller coaster of emotions. I've all this stuff has come up that I've released from my from my past. It is I'm like I've got goosebumps just thinking about it. Firstly, most of us aren't even breathing properly. So just learning to take a full diaphragmatic breath gives you so much energy. It's incredible. Um, but the kind of breath work I'm doing comes it's called inspirational breathing. The um woman Nicola Price who runs it is just such a character she's so amazing she's in her 60s she's a two times breast cancer survivor she is so many different strings to her bow it's incredible she's brilliant and she really brings um she brings the breath but she brings movement into it and a deep 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 listening to your body and what it me- what it needs in the in the moment and so much comes through because um, there's a fascinating book called The Body Keeps the Score. And that is all about how, you know, you can't just process things in your head. You just can't. A lot of things have to be processed in your, in your body and maybe your head as well, but they definitely have to be processed in your body. And so breath work with movement is just one of these amazing kind of uh, ways of allowing yourself to process all sorts of stuff from your past. And also I might add yesterday. Um, so the day after I finished the training, I needed to go to the hospital for a follow-up appointment to my surgery to have some stitches taken out of my eye, which wasn't very nice. And I was a bit, um, not feeling comfortable when I came home and I don't like hospitals very much, to be honest, you know, that kind of feeling when you're a patient and it's all a bit uncomfortable. And I realized when I got home, Hey, I've got this brilliant tool now that I can use to process my emotions. And within about 10 minutes, the feeling was gone. And I was full of compassion for the people that worked in the hospital. It was extraordinary. I sound a bit like a crazy woman now, but I just can't tell you how extraordinary it is to work with your body in that way. Mm, no, I, I believe it. And it's something that I, I guess I've experienced in a different kind of way in terms of just my exercise routines and doing gymnastics. And it, it's transformational for me um, to go to a space where I can be very present with what I'm doing in that moment. And I think that breathwork sounds to me like a form of that but you can carry it with you wherever you go where you're having a moment for yourself and you're being present with yourself in that in that time and now you mention it I mean I'm talking about breathwork in a more therapeutic sense but one of the key things that I teach the junior doctors to do is when they're in that stress response 
you know, because the bleep has gone off and you don't know what you're going to go and face in a minute or or something happens like in the th- in theatre and you're you just, is to just take that moment. Somebody said to me, or oh, what I do now, now that we've had this course, is I turn around and look for something in the cupboard so nobody can see me. And she just takes a few kind of slows her breath down, which tells your brain that your body is safe and kind of gets rid of those stress hormones and then just allows you to be more resourceful in the moment. So it seems like such a simple thing, but just breathe. Yeah, for sure. I think that that word safety is um, is actually exactly what it is that we're looking for all of the time. When, when I never thought of it in that way, but when you are on a night shift and you have everything going off at the same time, it is akin, it is akin to feeling like you're just being out of your depth or you feel like, I always felt like I was drowning. That's the, that's the metaphor I would always use. And so safety is what it is that we're looking for essentially on a, on a kind of deep physiological slash psychological level. Um, so I can see how taking a moment for yourself just to reassure yourself in a, in a, in a very kind of physical sense can also psychologically reassure us as well. So thank you. I always show this very, um, very technical picture of a brain that has three levels and you've got your kind of physical safety level. And if you're in stress response, you can't access the emotional or executive parts of your brain because you're just in stress response. So you have to, you have to convince your brain that your body is safe. So breathing, laughing, like some physical movement, um, but, but breathing is the, the easiest way. And then this is what, this is the next level is where I'm really interested in because the next level is the emotional safety. And I, I hear from the doctors that I work with and I have experienced as a patient, a lot of people in the hospital do not speak to each other in a very kind way. And so that emotional safety is not there. And if the emotional safety isn't there, you can't access the executive brain state. So when people are yelling at trainees because they don't know something, they're not learning anything. They're not learning anything because they can't reach their executive brain state because they emotionally are unsafe. And I, I have this secret ambition that I'm now announcing to you, but I have this ambition to just change that culture on the floor, on the shop floor, because it's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. You, you and I both, honestly, this is part, this is part of why I do this podcast. When I was a clinician, I didn't know anyone like you. I didn't know that there was, um, advice for dealing with these things. I just wasn't aware of it. And, um, I think increasingly people, maybe they are aware of it, but there isn't anything targeted specifically towards clinicians. And so I'm so, so glad that we could have this conversation. I just want you to imagine for a moment that you are the dean of a university and you can influence the curriculum for healthcare students in any way that you see fit. What educational experiences would you want them to have that could help them to lead a happy and fulfilling career? My very first thing is, I mean, you know, the trainees and and people coming up to university get enough of a kind of academic education don't they I don't think they need any more of that um (laughs) as I've just been saying that the thing that I would love to change is the culture of how 
um, everybody in the hospitals and other healthcare settings are relating to each other. I would love to do something around that, which, you know, is everything from like passing comments that you're making as you, as you walk by somebody or little joke, jokes you make that might not be very funny to the person receiving them to how feedback is given. Oh my goodness, there's so much feedback and it's, and nobody, it's not just um, healthcare settings. Very few people get taught how to give useful feedback or how to receive feedback. I just did a, a session with some trainee anaesthetists about, you know, I can't change the fact that people are being pretty bad at giving you feedback, but what can I do to help you receive that feedback in a way that isn't going to like stab you in the heart every time you get it? But I'd love to really work on on that feedback mechanism and how how on the job training is delivered and just how you speak to each other in that context. I think that alone would just make such a massive difference. As I said, the way I, I had surgery recently and the way that uh, a consultant was speaking to a trainee over my head was just shocking. I wanted to disappear, let alone the trainee. <laughs> So that trainee wasn't learning anything in that moment, I'm sure. I'd also love really proper space to be given for well-being programs with more of a coach approach. So not the kind of people don't need um, more PowerPoint presentations about stress management techniques. We all know them all. We do. But like, how the hell do we actually do them? Like, how do we fit it into our crazy lives? We need time for reflection, time to be together with our with our peers so that we can learn from each other. And I mean, you know, in South Yorkshire, they've done a, a great job of, of, of bringing me in and kind of making it work. But even so, you know, rotors and people are, you know, are coming to my sessions in scrubs and like their beepers are going off and they're having to run off like space being given. Uh, for this so that people can really engage. I think that would be really useful because then you were saying you didn't know what was what was available. A lot of people don't know. And even when they do know, there's a bit of a stigma attached to going to some of these things, to accessing mental health support. But somehow these wellbeing, these types of wellbeing programs, people feel a bit more comfortable accessing. I'd really love there to be a, a kind of culture right from the get-go, you know, when the 18-year-olds come in, of creating peer support structures because I think they're so important. And unfortunately, I know that in some specialties, peer support structures that were there have been taken away and it's had a really bad, bad impact. Um, so I'd like people to be really used to doing that right from the start. So it's just really normal to talk to your peers. Because every time I run a program, again, as I said at the beginning, everyone's like, I never knew anyone felt this way. And I'm like, how is that possible? You see each other at work every day, but it's, re it's really difficult to talk. And underneath that all, I'd really love from the start for students to feel that they have agency to work on their well-being. That they they reach out for support. That if there aren't any peer support structures in place, they create them because they're useful for them. I think it can feel a bit institutionalized, and then people just wait for things to be given to them. And then, of course, if they're not to them, then there's nothing. So a bit of 
agency to go out and make these things happen. I completely 100% agree with you on every single one of those fronts. I think that um, particularly what you're saying with these kinds of, I suppose, presentations that we get a lot of the time, CPD, these kinds of things that we're supposed to, it, it becomes mandatory for us to look after ourselves in this kind of institutionalized way. It's like, well, mental health is important. Therefore, let's make it a tick box that you must complete. And if you haven't, then you might fail the year. I just don't, I don't understand this idea of like hanging something that is important for people's well-being over their heads in a way that now doesn't really make it a thing that helps them. It's just another requirement for them to fulfill in a sense. So yeah, I, I think it's it's a really wonderful what you're doing with the the wellbeing programs. I um I'll confess it's also kind of a, a secret mission of mine to change the culture for clinicians and for for the students coming up as well who are dreading their job, starting their job as a as a clinician as well. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to see more of the work that you're doing, Mia. Well, let's team up on that one because we're both going to need all the help we can get. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So Mia, where, where can people learn more about you? Where can they connect with you? So interestingly, I am coming off all social media as part of my ever-increasing search for more well-being. So to find me, you can find me, uh, if you go to my website, www changefoundry.org.uk you can see what I do and you can subscribe to my newsletter that's the only way that I communicate with people now and all my work's done by referral and invitation anyway so all the beautiful people that I work with introduce me to new beautiful people and it's just a wonderful community so come join us um, and I am super friendly I love I respond to every message I get I love talking about all of this stuff so if you've got any questions at all just email me mia at changefoundry.org.uk I'd love to get into a conversation with you amazing thank you so much Mia you're welcome thank you for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor I hope it inspired you in your personal journey Check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links. And if you enjoyed this, do me a favor, subscribe and share this episode with someone else you think could benefit from this message. I'd love to hear from you. So why not leave a rating and review? It really helps other people to discover the podcast too. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Rolakeojo and on Instagram as Rolakeo.so. So that's all for now, but I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor.